1 Corinthians 15. We're taking a break from James. We, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last Friday evening during our Good Friday service, and we're going to pick up and think about it again, consider it again. Uh, and so we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip there in a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Let me encourage you to take one of those and bring it home and read it. It is the Word of God that works. It is not my opinions. It's not the opinions of news commentators or uh, media outlets. It's not the, 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 the opinions of our favorite movie stars that matter. It's, it's interesting to me that we turn to movie stars for advice now. Uh, but they seem to, because they're known, they seem to be given some, some weight when they speak. I think it's nuts. But... There is power in this word. So if you don't have a Bible, let me just tell you this morning, that's yours. The Bible in the back of the chairs, if you don't have one, take it, use it. It'll radically transform your life. I'm living proof of that. Truth is, anybody in here that claims Christ as Savior is living proof of that. But I'd love to tell you my story at some point. If you don't know it, it will make a difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm struck by that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Will you pray with me? Well, Father... This is your story, recorded in your word, that we might gather around today and celebrate the grace that's in us. There's not one of us that stands in your presence or before you as one worthy, as one deserving of what you have done. Not one of us that can claim that we have earned our position, that you were obligated to us in some way. But by your grace, because you have loved us with such a great, pure love, you sent your Son to die in our place and for our sin and to rise. Would you help us to believe that more fully today? Would you help us to look to it more completely? Would you help us, Father, 
rest in the grace that comes through Christ. And if there are any here today that have never trusted you, would you move upon them, Holy Spirit, wake them up, regenerate their soul, give them new birth, that they might believe, that they might be converted and trust in this gospel. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, Paul's point in this chapter is to correct an erroneous view of the resurrection. He he wasn't writing sermon material for Easter Sunday morning, just so you know. Uh, He was correcting an erroneous view of the resurrection. The Corinthians were a pretty messed up group of people. They had a lot of problems within that church. Uh, If you've ever been in a church, you're probably familiar with that. It happens to the best of us. There were a lot of troubles that they were facing, and so he corrected a lot of problems in this letter uh, to, to the Corinthian people. But their view of the resurrection wasn't just about Jesus' resurrection. Their problem, and you could see it in verse 12 if we had read one more verse, you could see that their problem wasn't just Jesus' resurrection, but their own. So Paul is seeking to correct that. And in so doing, he's also demonstrating the importance of Jesus' resurrection as it applies to everything we believe, everything we hope in, everything that matters to us in life. The reality is, well, let me just say it like this. Paul wasn't thinking about an Easter celebration exactly. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't what he was getting at. But, but obviously, as we sit here today, the only reason we have any reason to gather and celebrate this as a holiday, the only reason that we would have had to come together and celebrate the death of a man who lived nearly 2,000 years ago The only reason that any of this matters is that he is not dead, but that he is alive. In in these opening verses, Paul is, is, is in short and concise terms emphasizing the importance of the resurrection, not simply so we believe in the resurrection, but so that we don't lose everything else that we believe. The idea here is that he is helping us understand that without the resurrection, we lose the gospel. There's no reason to have a church meeting. There's no reason to live religious lives. There's no reason to do anything but what our heart desires if Jesus is still dead. There is no hope. There is no chance of salvation. There is no earning our place. Paul isn't simply just defending the resurrection. He's defending the whole gospel, the very thing that we stand on, the very reason we exist, the very source of our identity. See, his point in this chapter is not just simply to to give us an apologetic position, a, a, a way to argue that Jesus is alive. His point in this chapter is to keep the Corinthians from running off the rails and losing the whole gospel. I don't know about you, but I've never met anybody face to face that came back from the dead. It seems a crazy thing to believe. I've never met anybody that face to face that 
that would make the kind of claims that's being made in this passage. That's because nobody like Jesus had ever lived. Nobody like Jesus had ever been. See, if, if we lose Jesus, if we lose his resurrection, we don't just lose a doctrinal position or a doctrinal point. We lose the whole gospel. And I think that's why Paul starts where he does, by emphasizing the gospel. In accordance with the scriptures, the gospel is that Jesus died in our place for our sin, was buried, and on the third day was raised to life. We either have that as the whole gospel or we have no gospel. So on Friday evening, we've, we focused on the death of Jesus. We looked at the death, specifically considering what it means in verse 3 that Jesus died for our sin. At the, end of the, at, at the end of the evening, I asked you to consider, for those of you that were here, I asked you to imagine what it would be like if that was it. And we finished the night. We shut it down and I prayed and I said, you're dismissed. And there was an obvious awkwardness to the end of that meeting. It was incomplete. It wasn't finished. There's something missing. What, what, what's missing? Well, probably what was missing for us is we're so used to singing after you hear me preach. That's the, that's the rhythm that we have. We sing, we greet, we preach, we sing, and then we go. Let me, let, let me just say this. That awkwardness from the other night pales in comparison to the, to the emptiness that would be left if Jesus was still in his grave. You just imagine what it was that those disciples were experiencing as they, as they watched from a distance. We only know of one that went close to the cross, and that's John. And we know that because John talks about the moment where Jesus speaks from the cross and, and, and basically speaks to him about taking Mary as his mother. The others, it seems, they watched from a distance. We have no indication that they were even there when Jesus was buried. It was... It was Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple, and Nicodemus, who had come secretly at night, that are named as the ones who put him in the tomb. Just imagine what they're thinking. This man that they had thought was the Messiah. This man who they had left their livelihoods for. They had left everything behind and begun to follow him. For three years they'd followed him. They'd seen him do amazing miracles. Speak amazing truths. They even at one point say, you have the words of life. And this man that they were convinced had come to save Israel is hanging on a cross. And by the end of the day he's dead and his lifeless body is in a tomb. As many times as he had told them, as, as much as he had prepared them for, they had no idea what was coming next. They ran and they hid and they locked themselves behind closed doors and hid 
because of what they feared it meant for them. If that was the end of the story, there's no good news to celebrate. You think leaving the service without singing is awkward. Try to preach to people about a Savior who's still dead in the grave and who can't promise anything after this life. And Paul's going to make a point here in a minute in, the, in this chapter. Well, we're not going to get there, but he's going to make the point that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of, of all people, not just a few. We are of all people to be pitied most. If we have placed our faith in a Savior who lies dead in a grave, we got nothing might as well go on and go down to the lake. You might as well leave out of here and go to the bar. <laughs> See, if, if Jesus did not rise, we don't just lose a religion, we lose the gospel. We don't just lose, lose a purpose to, to, to practice religious things, we lose the very hope of our life. If we don't have Jesus dead and raised, we got nothing. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not that Jesus came to earth. It's not simply that Jesus came to earth, put on flesh, dwelt among us. As important a doctrine as that is, that he put on flesh and dwelt among us, that he is the son of God incarnate. The gospel is not simply that Jesus came to earth. Earth. The gospel is not simply that Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't matter that he was born of a virgin if he didn't die and rise. You see, the gospel is not these doctrinal positions. The gospel is not that Jesus died and was buried. As important as these are, please hear me, as important as these are, we will fight for them. The Bible speaks of them, but they are not the gospel. Jesus could have put on flesh, dwelt among us, died, and headed on back to heaven without ever rising. He could have left the body as easily as he took it on. He didn't have to die a sacrificial death, and he didn't have to rise. You see, Jesus could be the Son of God and not be a risen Savior. Except that that's not how the Bible tells the story. You see, the gospel is not these doctrinal perspectives as important as they are. And in fact, I would suggest if you don't see the divinity of Christ, then that's heresy. If you don't see that Jesus came, put on flesh incarnate, came, put on flesh, dwelt among us, I'd say that's heresy. But by itself, it's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus... The Son of God, only begotten Son of God, came, took on human nature. He lived here on the earth without sin. And from all outward appearances, he he, he could have died and been buried and walked away, but that's not what he did. He allowed himself to be killed on a cross that he might die in our place and for our sin. And so that he might raise on the third day, just as the scriptures said he would. In accordance with the scripture, the gospel is that Jesus died in our place for our sin and was buried. And on the third day was raised to life. Our Savior is not dead. He is risen. He 
is alive. That's the difference between every every other religion, every other religious perspective, and every other thought that someone might come into a good relationship with God in ours. You can go to the tombs of all these other religious leaders. You can find their bodies laying in the ground. But Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive today. Look at verses 5 through 8. This isn't just Paul's testimony. This was the consensus of the early church. It's the testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses. Many of whom were still living, he says. Look at how he says it. There's, there's people there's people all over that have seen him. First he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You know why that matters? Because he can't be making this claim and people not going and checking it out. But, but before there was factcheck.org or whatever that is, you know, on the internet, before that was, this is how they did it. This is how they demonstrated that what I'm saying is true. Go talk to the people that saw it. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He doesn't even say they've died. That's significant in, that, in, in, in this text. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one who's untimely born. He also appeared to me. Now, I don't have time to go through every one of the perspectives that's presented there, but let me just point out these three names. Cephas, that's Peter. He, he had denied even knowing Jesus the night that Jesus was arrested. He was standing around a fire, right? Standing, standing at a fire and people were like, hey, don't, aren't you one of the ones that was with Jesus? He's like, absolutely not. Well, first it starts off no, then it goes to absolutely not. Then he starts to curse to try to prove that he wasn't. And after Jesus dies, Peter goes into hiding. He's hiding in a locked house. But if we follow the story and thread of Peter's life from the moment that Jesus died to the moment that he stands on Pentecost morning before thousands of people preaching that Christ is the risen Savior, something drastically had to happen. This man went from being a coward to being a courageous, bold, professing believer. What could have happened? James. He's the brother of Jesus. He's seen Jesus growing up like he knew him as a kid in ways that none of us would have ever known. Or even it's difficult for us to fathom Jesus because we don't have a lot of records from his childhood. But James is like, he's not, he's not the Messiah. He's, he's out of his mind. It tells us in Mark 3.21 that his brothers thought he was crazy. Something happened. James wrote one of the letters of the New Testament. He wrote, in fact, we've been studying his book of the Bible. He becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. What could have possibly changed his mind? Paul had persecuted the early church. He had sought to wipe it out. He wanted to end the teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. He wanted to put to a put 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 an end to the teaching that Jesus had died and was risen. And now, he's going from place to place and preaching, planting churches. And even though he probably didn't fully understand it, writing Bible. What could have happened? They met the risen Savior. 
They saw him with their own eyes. Their whole life was turned upside down. Or or, or better yet, their life was turned right side up. And here they are. Standing among hundreds of people who have seen Jesus with their own eyes. And everything for them is different. Regardless of what anyone else says, they are not changing their mind because of what they have seen. The same thing happened to every one of them. They met Jesus face to face, the risen Lord. They believed that Jesus who had died was no longer dead. It was was, uh, surprising to me. I think I've used this before. Uh, I've talked about this before here. There was a National Geographic uh, um, series about Jesus and, and how his... How he basically, how Christianity kind of took over and how it rose to power and ended up in Rome. And they go through this whole documentary series. And, and in one of the episodes, at the very end, not even during the, um, the actual episode, but at the end, I, if I remember right, credits are kind of up on the screen. And they're interviewing this archaeologist, I think he's an archaeologist, that was talking about why we still believe in Jesus. Why we still celebrate him. And how it was that Christianity rose to power. Because Jesus wasn't the first person that had come into Jerusalem saying that he was the Messiah. Jesus wasn't the first one making claims. What was different? And this guy, this is literally what he said. His followers became convinced that he wasn't dead, but he was alive. Say it ain't so! Really? Really? That's absolute, that is the difference. In accordance with the scripture, the gospel is that Jesus died in our place for our sin, was buried, and on the third day was raised to life. He is not dead. He is alive. But more than the testimony of men, more than the testimony of Paul, this has always been the testimony of God through his word. This is in accordance with the scripture. The gospel is not God's plan. Or, I'm sorry, the gospel is God's plan. Sorry. I'm listening to what I'm saying. The gospel is God's plan, not man's invention, to provide salvation from sin and death. The gospel is God's plan, not man's invention. This isn't what Paul professes. This isn't what hundreds of people got together in a story they made up. This gospel is God's plan to provide salvation from sin and death. We see that specifically in this passage where Paul says, I've received it and I've delivered it. I would remind you, brothers, 15.1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I received. So Paul himself is saying, you've received this because I delivered it, but I delivered it because I received it. This is not his invention. This is not, it's original to God. Paul doesn't take credit for the message. He doesn't act as if he came up with the idea. And over and over through the scriptures... Over and over through the New Testament, we see that the scriptures have been speaking of Jesus' death and his resurrection. We can see it clearly in the Old Testament. Jesus' sacrifice, as as an example, as our need for a substitute is pointed out all over the New Testament. You can look at it in Leviticus as they break out the Levitical law, the the ceremonial law, where, where they're going to be dealing with sin. Over and over, substitutionary sacrifices, the shedding of blood in the place of sinners. 
lambs, goats, and bulls. Now I mentioned on Friday night the the Day of Atonement was one of the one of the uh, major holidays for the Jewish people. It was a time where the priest would take a bull, he would kill the bull, he'd basically make a, a sacrifice on his behalf and cleanse and purify the the tent of meeting, uh, and then he would take a a goat and he would sacrifice the goat for the sins of the people and then he would take a goat and he would put his hand on the goat he would confess the sins of Israel over the goat and then they would take the goat out of the camp and send it off into the wilderness to die the removal of sin so you see the atoning the meeting the satisfaction of sin and you see the removal of sin in the day of atonement it's called expiation and propitiation I don't know if you're concerned with those terms but that's what they are doing that's all over the Old Testament the Jews knew and understood the idea of substitutionary sacrifice well. There were sacrifices for sins every day. In prophecy regarding the suffering of our Savior, Isaiah not only prophesied the virgin giving birth, but he also prophesied the Savior who would suffer, Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later as Jesus was uh, teaching. He would apply this to himself in Luke chapter 22 verse 37. As he spoke to his apostles, he told them that what the scriptures wrote of him had to be fulfilled. That he had to be numbered among the transgressors. Even though he had never sinned, he had to be counted as a sinner. First Peter, as Peter's writing, he understands. He's already heard Jesus apply Isaiah 53 to himself. And Peter picks up this idea in his letter. And he, he highlights Isaiah 53 as an example of Jesus' suffering for us. And, and basically then turns it around and, and uses it to say, you might as well expect to suffer too. Because that's what your Savior did. It, it's really easy to see his suffering. It's really easy to see that there's a need for a substitute. It's really easy to see that, that this is what the Messiah was to do, that, that the Savior was to die. And with a little help from a New Testament understanding, from a regenerate perspective, if you will, it's just as easy to see his resurrection there. You remember the story of Abraham. We just talked about it a little bit uh, when we were studying James. He was called of God to get up and leave his land and to go to a place where, he, where God would show him. And Abraham obeyed. He brought his family. He brought his livestock. brought his servants. Everybody He takes them and he, and he leaves his home and he follows God. As you follow the course of Abraham's life, you see him consistently, even if imperfectly, trusting God. To the point where he ends up having a son named Isaac. Abraham had not had a son. He and his wife Sarah hadn't been able to have a child. He prays to God. He deals with God about this. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And he does. Isaac is born. Abraham loves him deeply. And God tests him. When Abraham was a young man, God says, take Isaac and sacrifice him in the place I'm going to show you. Abraham obeyed. Now, I don't know if you're a parent. Maybe if you're even a child of what it might, well, we're all children of somebody. What it might feel like to think 
that our parents would obey that command. He gets to the place where he can see the mountain off in the distance and he tells the people that are with him, his servants, he says, you guys stay here. They left the donkey that was carrying the wood. They they left the servants and he puts the wood on Isaac and they start walking and they are heading to the mountain where he is going to sacrifice his son. He knows exactly what his intent is to do. I can't imagine. Isaac, his son, says, Dad, we got the wood, we got the fire, but where's the ram? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. The, the writer of Hebrews helps us understand this. He gives us some insight into it. And he writes this about Abraham. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. This is Hebrews eleven nine. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac. That's the wrong verse. I'm going to have to flip over. I don't know what I did to you guys there. Sorry. <clears throat> so here we go. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, listen to this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. If God hadn't intervened, Isaac would have been killed, but in that place... God showed that he would provide and he prefigured a, re- a resurrection as if it was going, as if it had really happened. He prefigured the resurrection of Christ. Jonah is another story from the Old Testament. was called of God to go to Nineveh and, 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 and he didn't want to go. He just had no desire. He hated the Ninevites. He was a, uh, uh, not a, not a uh, well, we'll just say he was a racist man. He had no desire to go. He didn't have any desire to see anybody come to repentance. And so instead of going where God had told him to go, he went and he jumped on a boat and he headed the opposite direction. A storm comes. Actually, the, the text actually says that God hurled a storm at the boat. And, and this powerful storm comes and, and Jonah's down in the bottom of the boat sleeping. They wake him up and they start trying to figure out what's going on. Whose gods are angry? And Jonah's like, I know who it is. I'm running from God. And they're like, what are you thinking? He says, you must throw me over. Well, they didn't want to do that at first, but they eventually do. And as they threw him over, the storm immediately went calm. He sinks, he falls, he starts to sink into the depths. And in fact, in the poem, it talks about the fact that he was, he was sinking down to the bottom of the ocean where he is swallowed by a fish. Three days and three nights, he lives in the belly of that fish until he's vomited out on a beach. Jesus would later point at this as a sign of his own death and resurrection. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, he answered them. An evil, adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's the only sign they're getting. That's all they needed, he says. And they would ignore it. 
David, the king of Israel and writer of many of the Psalms, would, would sing, that, that they would sing, that the Jewish people would sing. He wrote this in Psalm 16, 8 verses, or 16 verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So let your Holy One or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. On Pentecost morning, as Peter courageously steps out, you know, he's gone from being the coward hiding in the dark to the courageous, bold preacher, preaching of the risen Christ, he quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and then he says this in Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. Does that sound familiar? Jesus died and was buried. The difference between Jesus and David is that David's tomb is with us to this day. You know whose tomb we can't go and find? With a body laying in it? Oh, you can go to Jerusalem and they'll show you a place where they say that's the empty tomb. But you know why we're not sure? Because there's no body there to prove it. There's nobody there. Jesus is alive. He came to die and rise. In accordance with the scripture, the gospel is that Jesus died in our place for our sin, was buried, and on the third day was raised to life. Because Jesus is alive, everything that he set out to do through his death has been and will be accomplished. This isn't just good news. This is great news. Because Jesus is alive. When he died as our substitute, his death affirmed. It actually affirmed God's righteousness and satisfied God's wrath. Something you and I could never do. Because Jesus is alive. His death as our substitute ransoms his people from the futility of this life. Because Jesus is alive. His death as our substitute brings victory over Satan, sin, and death. Because Jesus is alive. His death as our substitute established the new covenant. Because Jesus is alive. His death is our substitute ends our need to continue making sacrifices or making up for our sin, which we can't do. Because Jesus is alive, his death is our substitute, and his resurrection from the dead make way for ours. Do you know why death has lost its sting? You know why death has no power over us? You know why we can sing songs like we sang this morning? Not because Jesus died but because Jesus died and rose. He is alive. This isn't just great news or good news. This is great news. According to Paul, there is no better news because the gospel is a message sent with the highest priority and is to be delivered with the highest priority. I delivered unto you as of first importance. And then he comes to verse 11. He says, whether it's the other apostles, whether it's the others who have seen Christ or not. This is what we preach. This is what you believe. 
You see, this isn't just a message that's supposed to be sent. It's not just sent with the highest priority. It's not just delivered with the highest priority. The, the reality is that it is to be preached, proclaimed with the highest priority. We're not just here to, to gather in a room and celebrate the resurrection, although we are here together in a room and celebrate the resurrection. But there's so much more. What are your discussions about on Monday mornings when you wake up and you walk into work? Well, what is your heart drawn to as you look to be entertained and find happiness? What, what is it that you want to make sure that your neighbor knows? The gospel is of first importance for our preaching and for our proclaiming. But I'm going to suggest the things that we're talking about, the things that we're going to talk about, are the things that we believe are of highest priority. The gospel is of first importance for our preaching and proclaiming, and the gospel is of first importance for our hearing and believing. Brothers and sisters, not only are we supposed to preach it and proclaim it, we are to be believing it. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not reading my own heart wrong, and I'm not thinking of the, the struggle of man in, in error, our greatest problem as a church today is that we think the world needs something other than the gospel. They don't need our opinions they don't need us to entertain them. Trust me, they're, they're better at entertainment than we are. They got better musicians. They play, play music better. They make way better movies. You ever seen the acting in the Christian movies? It's terrible. They, they don't need our help with entertainment. They've even figured out a way that they can begin to help one another in social justice ways without the church. They've just given that responsibility to the state. Well, the government will take care of it. We've developed welfare systems. We've developed social security for the elderly. We Medicare, Medicaid for health insurance. And if, and if things continue to go the way we're going to go, then, then none of us will have to worry about paying for health care. It'll just be taken in our taxes. And, and whether you like that or not, it doesn't matter. What they're doing is they're figuring out how to, feel, how to fix the woes of life in this life without the church. They don't need us to meet those needs. You don't have to be Christian to feed the hungry. You don't have to be Christian to care about whether somebody's dying on the side of the street or not. But you do have to be Christian to believe the gospel enough that you would preach it as of first importance so that someone could hear it and believe it. Brothers and sisters, our place in the world is not to go to them to meet their physical needs, but to go preaching the gospel now, I'm not saying we won't do things that meet physical need. The, the whole Horace Man thing, brothers and sisters, the whole thing about Horace Man and the ministry we do with these students is so that we have opportunity to preach the gospel. But that is not going to fix them. It's not going to help them. It, 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 setting up a store and letting them buy stuff will do nothing for them. I was listening this morning to a, 
debate between Alistair Begg and uh, Dennis Prager. I didn't know this. I've heard of Dennis Prager. I've heard of his radio show. And I, if you're on Facebook, I don't, can't imagine that you haven't heard of Prager University. Uh, but I didn't know this, but Dennis Prager is a Jew, and he has rejected Christ as the Messiah. And he's having a conversation. The conversation, actually, you can go look it up for yourself. The conversation was called, Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. And Alistair Begg was the Gentile. And so he was there to, to demonstrate a Christian perspective of who Jesus was and why we would hold he's the Messiah. And Dennis Prager presenting why he believed that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And you know, he said something that struck me. And I... I hope it'll strike you. He said he was in a conversation with a pastor at one point, and the pastor was, was, was pleading with him, saying, I, I'm praying that one day you'll trust in Christ as your Savior. And he said, it dawned on me in that moment, he cares more about what I think of Jesus than I do. For him as a Jew, he doesn't care who Jesus is. He believes the whole world is to be brought to Sinai, that they might fall on their face under the law of God and be, be find, find under his uh, law, obedience to adherence to his law, that they might live good enough lives and be counted acceptable by God. Alistair Begg, actually I don't remember if it's Alistair Begg or if it's just the thought that came to my mind. I wonder if I care more about who Jesus is than my neighbors. I wonder if I care more for someone else about who Jesus is than they do. Paul was so convinced that Christ had had lived, that he had died a sacrificial death in our place and for our sins, that he had risen from the grave that he walked away from everything he knew and he gave his whole life to the preaching and proclamation of the word because he knew more important than anything else was that people hear it so they could believe it. On this Easter morning, let me just, let me just leave you with this thought. The gospel is that Jesus died. He was buried and he, raised, he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is God's plan for salvation. We know it and we believe it because men like Paul saw it as their responsibility, the first and highest priority of their life to go and preach it. And so we gather on Friday night to celebrate the, the crucifixion. We gather this morning to celebrate the resurrection. But brothers and sisters, will we really believe it? And trust that is the only thing that really matters. Will we care enough about what others think of Jesus that we won't stay silent? Let's pray.